With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series I am developing. Tonight, I am happy to welcome the man Dodgers franchise holds in charge of preserving their team history, and that's team historian and publications editor Mark Langell. Thanks for joining me, Mark. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Uh, we seem to be having some technical difficulties with Mark Mark's uh, phone. Um, but for now, uh, basically what we're looking to do uh, with Mark, specifically besides checking to see uh, how he got involved in being the team historian, is I'm looking to see exactly how the team came to to design the Dodgers uh, script that we all know so uh, so famously across the chest. Between 1937 and 1938, there was a, a difference between the uniforms. In 1937, the uniform was actually green, uh, and it only said Brooklyn across the chest. They had many, many different nicknames, uh, very, very period-centric, uh, depending on the era. Uh, the Dodgers once were called the Superbas uh, when uh, Ned Hanlon coached them, and Hanlon was the name of a circus performer, uh, and Ned, the person who coached the Dodgers at the time. He was not a circus performer, but the Hanlon name was famous around the circus circuit, if you will. Uh, Mark, are you able to join us now? I guess not, unfortunately. But uh, basically, they they also had a nickname uh, called the Robins. Uh, the Robins nickname um, had to do with Wilbert Robertson, who was uh, quite the character in the uh, the 20s and 30s for the Dodgers, they man- he managed the team, uh, and it, it was um, just something they caught on. Even though the Trolley Dodger name, they were referred to many, many times throughout uh, publications as you uh, read through the 1910s, the 1920s, and the 1930s. But the names always came back to the Superbas and the Robins until the Dodger scripts came in existence. All right, hold on for a second. Let's take a look. Hey, Mark, are you able to join us now? How's this? Yes, Mark, how are you? Yes. Oh, wonderful, Sam. I tried a different phone. It's a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. I'm I'm very happy that you can join us. And I was just telling our audience about uh, a little bit about the uh, Dodgers uniform history. But before we get into that, I'd like to get into your personal baseball history. Sure, absolutely. Where should we start? Well, let's start uh, with how you came about uh, liking the game, for instance. Well, a lot of people wonder, how do you become a team historian? And I say it's very easy. If you don't hit the ball in the Little League, you're well on your way to being a team historian. And so that's the way it was with me in Little League. It seemed I knew everything about baseball except how to hit the darn ball. Uh, And then when I went out in the field, that was also a challenge. But 
I never really let that bother me because I just enjoyed the atmosphere so much. You know, I would get my mm. you know one or two one or two innings in the field, but um, living in South Pasadena and having the Dodger franchise and uh, Vin Scully on the radio, uh, I guess just at a very early age, uh, it was like a magnet. And it, the mm. history and this bi-coastal stories of everything that came together. Uh, I can remember uh, my first game like it was yesterday. I'm 48 years old. That was 41 years ago, and I still can remember that first game when I was seven. So one way or another, uh, I've been hooked on, on going to the ball games in different roles. Let's talk about that game real quick. What was the final score, and who did they play? Well, it was uh, July the 15th, 1972, and they played the Montreal Expos. And uh, we actually went for my sister's birthday, which was going to be that week. And I just remember suddenly, you know, when you're a kid, you go to a playground or you might go to an amusement park, and suddenly you see this giant stadium. And, you know, if you're impressed, it really gets to your senses. And I don't remember much about, I mean, I've seen the box score, the Expos won uh, 3-2. to two, And I remember, though, the scoreboard changing and what are these numbers and, and cheering. And my parents told me that uh, I was looking at the people in front of me who were writing down like this little code in a magazine, and it turns out that they were scoring the game. But I wondered, why are they writing this down with such interest? And uh, my father later said that it, he noticed that I, I took to it like a duck to water, and it just became of uh, of great interest. I remember Doris Kearns Goodwin talking about her father. Uh, she would score the game and, and play back the uh, uh, play it back to him when, when she got home, and it seems as if uh, scorecard really helps somebody preserve the history, and, and uh, just like just like her, you went off and became a historian. Well, I did. I also became a sports writer. Uh, my background was writing, and I went from uh, being an intern at a Pasadena newspaper uh, in tenth grade. Uh, eventually, after going to Pasadena City College and Cal State Northridge, I covered the team from 1989 to 1993. And after the 93 season, I had a, a decision to make. Did I want to give up the beat and go into the front office and work on the publications? And I think really that was the only type of job that I would have given up the beat. I went from uh, one dream job to another, and this is my 20th year with the organization. And the team historian part, uh, people throw that term around. Uh, I was a journalism major, not a history major, uh, but in 2002, we had a couple ownership changes to that point, and Derek Hall, who now runs the Arizona Diamondbacks, he says, you know all this miscellaneous stuff about the franchise. Can we just collectively call you the team historian and any miscellaneous <laughs> phone call that we're not sure what to take care of, we can just transfer it to you? And I said, absolutely. And in the last 10 years, it can be something that happened uh, within the past month, for example, comparing Yasiel Puig uh, to Joe DiMaggio and other great rookies, or you can go back to the 1880s uh, when the Dodgers and the Giants first started to play. It's something different every day, and I always look forward to going to the ballpark because, you know, when you're a kid, you think if you work for a team, I'll be able to get autographs, I'll be able to get, you know, free food and things like that. And what, what I find is you not only collect people, but you collect their stories. Um, the statistics are nice, but you like to find out the behind-the-scenes stories and, and what really went into either a decision or uh, private locker room conversations that suddenly, like a presidential administration, can be declassified You know, when they come out with their book. Um, I'm always fascinated by their stories, and 
uh, as long as people have stories and as long as they're playing uh, the Dodger games and as long as it's unscripted, because right now mm-hmm. we're, we're doing this show in mid-July and we have no idea uh, if there'll be a parade at the end of the year uh, or if there'll just be a bo- big box of Kleenex. You just don't know how it's going to play out, and that's what makes it fun. Absolutely. And when exactly was the first time you really started exploring uh, the team's history in terms of uh, Brooklyn? Well, it's funny. There's a funny story to that. I was in first or second grade, and locally in South Pasadena we have a library. And back then there would be a library book fair. And I went to the library book fair, and I wasn't really looking for anything in particular. And one of my classmates from elementary school came up to me and said, hey, I found a book that I think you're going to like. Hold on, I'll get it for you. I thought, okay, I wonder what it is. And it turned out to be the Los Angeles Dodgers by Paul Zimmerman. And at that time, he was the sports editor. And it was copyright 1960, and they had just won the World Series in 59. But the book not only talked about the Dodgers of that era, but they also talked about uh, the Brooklyn era. And I just found that to be fascinating. But then a couple of years later, I thought, what what was I doing in first or second grade where a classmate would suddenly have the presence of mind to say he needs to have this reference book and um as i say i i was reading sports illustrated and sporting news at a very young age and my parents encouraged reading and it it it, it didn't seem anything out of the ordinary to me and so i've just always uh, as long as i can remember loved to read about the history and the baseball and you know, I knew at a young age that I was washed up as an athlete, so I didn't have to worry about any major league aspirations or broken heart in high school or anything like that as far as not advancing. Um, you know, when you read Joe Garagiola's book or Bob Euchre, you know there's a place for uh, either role players or, you know, dollar dollar uh, ninety eight hitters, you know, just take your, uh, uh, take your three swings or uh, three call pitches and uh, just go back to the dugout. So I, I think the key is I've always enjoyed the environment, and uh, I, I have at a very young age. Well, what are some of the most fascinating things uh, that you came across when exploring uh, the, the team in Brooklyn? We put together a coffee table book last year called The Dodgers from Coast to Coast, and there's a local collector named Gary Cypress uh, who has an amazing collection, and he was so generous uh, for us to be able to photograph some of the items. And one of the items that Gary has is the uh, letter from the National League, dated 1889, uh, to the Brooklyn baseball team, accepting them into the league and looking forward to the 1890 season. And, and you look at this document, and it's just it's just kind of like the Magna Carta when you see yeah. documents going that early. Uh, we do the publications and actually have in your hands a, a scorecard uh, from the 1880s, uh, a ticket, the earliest known Dodger ticket uh, from 1883, uh, it just really shows and emphasizes how old this franchise is, but then mm-hmm. some things still stay the same. Whoever was in charge at the time was promising fans that they would have state-of-the-art entertainment and uh, a great ballpark and a great experience, and I think that's the one common thread uh, that you find when you go through. Who's ever in charge, who's ever running the team, they've always needed to get feedback from the fans because... Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're not going to be able to have conduct a successful business if your clientele is not happy. So while the fortunes are going up and down on the field, whether it's a war, whether it's a depression, or just maybe they're not good for a particular cycle, 
there's always that underlining, what do the fans want? What kind of amenities can we give them? And knowing that the game is always evolving. There's always something down the road or you're looking at your competition, they have a new scoreboard, they have this, they have that. The level of expectation. The rules on the field have pretty much stayed the same as far as the dimensions of the diamond uh, and the way the game is played. Uh, But all the bells and whistles that have evolved over the years, uh, teams are trying to catch up with each other because ultimately they always try to make the fans as happy as they can be. Exactly, and and it's something that just keeps, uh, keeps it all linked up. That's for sure. It is. It is. Um, so when do you think in Los Angeles they started really appreciating the history uh, from a, from the Brooklyn standpoint? Because I know that you guys are, are very good at, at um, bringing players back, keeping, keeping the history alive, and keeping people educated about it. Uh, would you say because it's the Dodgers franchise and they brought so much history right away to Los Angeles, would you say that's always been there, or is that just kind of a, a recent thing over the last uh, 20 or 30 years? It's it's always been there because when they first came to Los Angeles in 1958, uh, the team finished seventh, uh, but there were so many famous names still on the roster uh, and the script was so famous. And uh, being in the World Series so many times uh, between 1947 and 1956, this wasn't just an expansion team that landed on the on the West Coast. This was a marquee franchise. But I do believe that when they came here in 58, Uh, They wanted to establish their own identity. They were so aware of their own history, uh, but they didn't want to have the bum caricature. That was something that was special to Brooklyn and the cartoon. And out in L.A., there was Hollywood, and there was the big Coliseum and and a whole new identity. So they really didn't stage anything as far as Brooklyn old-timer days uh, or anything like that until 1971 because they really wanted to establish the franchise uh, in Los Angeles, they played the four years at the Coliseum, and then starting in '62, they really wanted to show off the venue because O'Malley, ever since 1946, had dreamed of building a new stadium. Even though he was only a vice president at the time, uh, he knew that Ebbets Field was dated and was going to pretty soon be obsolete. Uh, and he also looked to teams like the Milwaukee Braves suddenly having a, a new ballpark and a new city and a big box office. So in the 1960s, they were aware of the Brooklyn history, but I think they shied away from it to be able to pump up the L.A. franchise. And then late in the 1960s, the Angels started to have old-timer days, and they would invite some of the Brooklyn players, and the Brooklyn players said, well, look at this. The Angels are inviting us, but not the Dodgers. And so I think enough time had passed, so by 1971, they staged old-timer days uh, with the Brooklyn players, because uh, before there would be like a Hollywood stars or sportscasters versus sports writers, but nothing really with a Brooklyn theme. And then by 1972, the big old timers day where the retired numbers for the first time and the first three were Jackie, Sandy, and Roy. And that was a big day. That at that point, that shows that the Brooklyn uh, was being acknowledged. And then sadly, starting in the 70s, that's when some of the big names started to uh, pass away. Uh, including Bill mm-hmm. Hodges and Jackie Robinson. Yeah, and uh, being a Mets fan, uh, you know the Gil the Gil Hodges death was uh, certainly had a huge impact on this side of the of the coast as well. Um, going to the Dodgers script, uh, they're they're 
I've, I haven't been able to find enough information about exactly where this design came from. And, and from 1937 to 1938, they switched uniforms, and the famous Dodger script was presented. And we'll get into the nickname in a second, but, but who, who designed the Dodger script that is, that is loved around the world? Well, don't worry about your research uh, in terms of trying to find the answer because I've been trying to find that answer for a long, long time. It's one of the great mm. mysteries. Larry McPhail uh, commissioned the new logo. Uh, he takes over the franchise. Uh, the franchise in 1937 finished 33 and a half games out uh, with Burley Grimes as the manager. They're in sixth place. And he had had a successful run with Cincinnati, and he was going to take over this challenge in Brooklyn. And one of the things that he was going to do was not only pour money into the franchise and get ballplayers from other teams, but he was also going to change the look. Now, the script comes about, but nobody has been able to pin exactly who came up with the script. Now, there is a designer on the East Coast named Lon Keller, and he designed the Yankee logo, and he had been commissioned by Larry McPhail when Larry goes over to the Yankees in the early 1940s. That's where the famous Yankee logo comes, where the bat is resting on a red, white, and blue hat, and you've got the Yankee script. Now, it's a fair assumption to say that Lon Keller could have been the creator of the Dodger logo, or Lon yeah. Keller could have looked at that Dodger script and been inspired to create the Yankee logo, but it looks awfully yeah. similar in terms of the font and the smoothness of it. So if I had to take an educated guess, I would say that a New York-based designer named Lon Keller designed the Dodger logo, and to me that would be my only guess because I don't know who the second choice would be. I know McPhail hired somebody to do it, and the only person that we can figure out uh, that had a relationship with McPhail as far as a baseball executive wanting to change the look of the team's artwork was Lon Keller. And Lon had a long career on the East Coast as a sports illustrator. Uh, so that would be my uh, guess, that uh, it was yeah. Lon Keller. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a, a good educated guess. It, it's interesting, you know, that there's so little information. You'd think that uh, this kind of stuff would be documented, but it it's just how it is. <laughs> and, well, and, uh, think about, back, think about back then, though. Think about back then in terms of what was going on. Now, nobody knew that Larry McPhail was going to be so successful in in terms mm -hmm. of what he was doing. The franchise was at a crossroads. Uh, in the in the 1930s, because when uh, the the estate was divided up between the McKeever brothers, 50-50, nothing could get done. It was a stalemate, and finally it goes to the bank. And obviously, the country is in a in a tough position with the depression. And so, whether you know the ballpark starting to decay, it had been built in 1913. They let the roster kind of go, and you can see sort of with the evolutions of the uniforms in the 1930s, they're all over the place. Different people are in charge. Mm -hmm. And so even though McPhail turns the corner, you know, in the middle of the 38 season, he's hiring Babe Ruth as a batting coach, and he's not really sure if he wants to get rid of Burley Grimes or put in a guy like DeRocher, and he's trying to get permission to get players like Camilli and, and Billy Herman. And so um, it's you wouldn't necessarily think, okay, we're going to document this great logo design yeah. because at the time they might have just been winging it and trying to do everything that they could, hoping that they still had enough money and then crossing their fingers that it would ultimately be successful on the field. 
it seems as if uh, the to run with the Dodger nickname, because as I was telling them at the uh, telling people at the beginning of the show, there was the Superbas because of Ned Hanlon and the Robins because of Wilbur Robertson. Uh, obviously, the Trolley Dodger nickname had been there from the uh, as, as it goes all the way back to the eighteen hundred uh, the eighteen eighties. So it, it seems as if would you agree that. They they chose the Dodger nickname to keep uh, to preserve the connection to their history, but at the same time move on from era from all the the, I, the Wilbert Robinson era specifically. I think that's exactly right because not only were they going to get away from naming uh, the club after people, I think the evolution of baseball uh, with logos and other teams having logos. Uh, back at the start of the turn of the century, you know, you could get away with calling your team the bridegrooms or the Phillies and, you know, cute names like that because a lot of it sometimes was based on vaudeville shows and, um, you know, sort of catchy titles. Uh, but baseball starting to grow up uh, early in the 20th century with logos and, and team nicknames. And so uh, Dodgers was became generic and not tied to a certain person, and I think that's why that they ended up using it. And plus, the uniqueness of it. Uh, there wasn't another mm-hmm. team called the Dodgers, so it wasn't named after a color, you know, or a giant or an animal or anything like that. Uh, Dodger was a unique, unique, a unique name, uh, and so I, obviously it's great that they it's great that they kept it because it really gave the team an identity as far as a unique brand. Exactly, and it's it's something uh, you know. At its core, it 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 goes all the way back to uh, you know old time city Brooklyn, because it's about dodging the uh, dodging those trolleys. And uh, I think uh, I once heard that seven people died a day from not dodging from not dodging the trolleys. So it, it's neat. It's it's a great thing that they understood the power the power of the Dodgers franchise and that they didn't go as far to rename them uh, themselves when they went to Los Angeles. I think that nickname and then the script and then when they came to Los Angeles and they had the interlocking L.A. and they kept it simple and then later they added the red number in the early 1950s uh, for television and that was at the suggestion. Mm of Kay O'Malley, because uh, she thought it was pretty, suddenly red, white, and blue, and you had a very unique combination and one that has stood the test of time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what are some of your favorite uniforms prior to the Dodger script? I, I like the pinstripes. Uh, there's one where there's circa 1912 where the Brooklyn is going uh, vertically, and uh, I like I like that look. Sometimes it's kind of funny when you see black and white photos, uh, because unless you see the actual uniform, you don't really appreciate, uh, you know, you sort of have this, this uh, uh, what, they had color back then, you know, in terms of, uh, right, yeah, right. Yeah, nobody, nobody fathoms uh, color, but uh, I, I, there's something about having Brooklyn on the script uh, very subtly, and over the years, they, they had different fonts as far as the B, and then I enjoyed also the satin uniforms, because one thing about the satin uniforms in the 1940s, not only did it reflect an experiment trying to take advantage of the new lights in the night game to try to illuminate these uniforms, uh, but you could pretty much see it was a great test to show how much they recycled the uniforms, because uh, when they stopped using them uh, in the, ni- the mid-1940s, the minor league instructors would still use them. And so in the early 1950s, 
uh, if an instructor liked to have one of those satin uniforms, uh, it would still be in use. And so that was a great example because if you have just a bunch of Dodge uniforms uh, with a generic script, it's kind of hard to tell that it's been recycled. Uh, but in the 1950s, when they uh, had 26 minor league affiliates, and you're trying to color coordinate, you're trying to keep track of 700 minor leaguers, uh, it was fun to see these satin uniforms that obviously were 5, 10 years old uh, still in <laughs> circulation by these instructors who thought they were really comfortable. That that certainly uh, is something that that's, uh, uh, has to do with that era because I, I, you, you know that they have so much money now that that wouldn't happen now. No, what would happen is uh, if a guy got a big hit uh, in the first inning, chances are he could switch uniforms by the fourth, and let's yeah. say he had three or four home runs in a game, chances are uh, if he was thinking like Pete Rose used to do during the chase for Ty Cobb's record, uh, a lot of guys are Dayward Perry for his 300th career victory. I remember, I think, reading the story that he wore five or six jerseys that day uh, so he could have five or six game-used jerseys from the day he won his 300th game. Uh, nowadays, if a guy had a, a great jersey, uh, chances are within a day or two uh, it'd be taken out of circulation and either be put into the archives or put on the market as a, as a game-used collectible with a hologram. So it's totally changed in terms of the way uh, the ball players are with their uniforms. And, and what you said about, uh, you know, having – being able to sell five, you know, five game, uh, five game used uniforms that has a lot to do, I think, with the uh, pre-free agency as well. Definitely, definitely. Nobody thought in those terms back then, and a lot of the ball players I talked to who played in the 1960s and 70s, it's not that they regret getting autographs because you know when you're in a mode, uh, you're not the type back then. You didn't really fraternize with the opponent. Uh, but they sort of kicked themselves as far as opportunities they had to either get bats or uniforms or to save their own bats and uniforms. I just saw a picture of Tommy Davis uh, in a 1969 Seattle Pilots uniform, and I'm sure at that point in his life, you know, he's cursing the heavens, saying, why am I on this horrible American League expansion team, uh, where in hindsight he'd be saying, i got to find every single Seattle Pilots uh, uniform up and fine because this is going to be like gold in 30 years because, you know, they're going to move the following season and these are going to be the rarest of rare uniforms. Exactly. It's it's pretty interesting because they they did keep the uh, the color uh, the color scheme when they moved to Milwaukee at first. Um, so that's that's interesting. And, you know, he, speaking of the Seattle Pilots, the, the 1969 New York Mets World Series trophy is the only World Series trophy with the Seattle Pilots pennant on it. You know, I never thought of that. That's a great yeah. – uh, that, that's a, that, that, is, that is an example of just how fun it is in terms of the baseball and the history because you can never assume that you're going to know everything. You, you would never presume that, and it's fun to know right. those little nuggets. Uh, just like we have six championships uh, in our history in terms of World Series, but we only have two trophies. And no, it's not a lack of security. May, baseball didn't come – uh, think of the trophy ceremony until 1967 when they saw the NFL giving out trophies. Exactly. Exactly. It's 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 just a, it's a lot of fun to 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 be in that kind of mindset and looking looking for these little uh, intricate details of of baseball history. And you can compare notes with people, and if somebody's from a particular region, you can reminisce about a certain player or a certain game or a certain era. 
and suddenly you have a connection with that person. It's tough to talk mm-hmm. either politics or religion or uh, economy. You know, it's tough to talk about certain subjects with people uh, if it's just a casual conversation. Uh, but sports and especially baseball, with all the minutia and all the trivia and, and all this uh, silly stuff that uh, us grown-ups carry around with us, uh, I think it's a lot of fun when, when two adults can suddenly go back and forth like little kids as far as uh, who would have been the best MVP of the 1960s or some other uh, mindless debate, but it's so important at the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, Mark, I know uh, you need to go soon, but I wanted to get back to uh, the transition between 1937 and 1938 one more time with uh, yeah. regards to the uniforms. Um now, obviously, we, we, this is only speculation talking about why they switch from the green to the blue, but in terms of your franchise and in terms of uh, the, you know, the, the time period, it actually is a big deal because you know, blue is, is a big part of your identity now. So what exactly do you think was the decision to, to flip over from green to blue? And I'll tell you uh, real quick my uh, hypothesis is that green just doesn't look – it clashes with the green of the field. That's my opinion and, and uh, of what somebody might have been thinking about it. What, what, what do you think? Well, I think somebody like Larry McPhail, who had introduced not only uh, night baseball, but he's the one who came to Brooklyn and said, what do you mean New York teams don't have their games on the radio out of, out, oh, yeah. out of your mind? You know, I mean, this is a pioneer, and so I think it's as simple enough, as a powerful enough man and a visionary man like Larry McPhail I think it's just simple enough to Larry saying, I don't like green. I don't like that color. I like, and, you know, obviously he was uh, he was a fan of blue, and I think it's just that simple. I don't think that Larry McPhail was the type of person to have uh, committees, uh, to be able to have subcommittees or meetings or things like that. Uh, he was a bull in the china shop when he wanted to get his way, and he basically would just go around and do whatever he wanted to do, and half the time he was asking the shareholders for more money uh, to be able to build up the stadium and everything like that. I think it's just simple enough of, of Larry McPhail looking across town at that Yankee uniform and say, you know what, if we're going to do this right, we have to look classy too. Uh, so not only the script, but it's going to be a different color. And the Yankees were not blue and the Giants were not blue. So my guess is that he wanted to pick a unique color and blue is still a strong color, uh, but it wouldn't be duplicated uh, by the Giants or the Yankees. So I think that's why, uh, and somebody might have even said, uh, what kind of blue would you like? How about royal blue? And maybe his ears perked up when he heard the word royal. It very easily could be something as simple as that. That's true, and eventually they called their minor league uh, team the Montreal Royals, yeah, and uh, who were obviously uh, made famous by Jackie Robinson in 1946. Um, exactly. Another another quick story with Larry McPhail. He uh, he wanted money for Camille. Uh, he had just gotten there, and he he talks to the board, but then they they they're arguing, and then he just runs out and goes to the to the trust uh, trust company, and they ask them, "Did you talk to the board?" And he he goes, "Yes, as a matter of form," <laughs> <laughs> which I think some sums it up about what he thought about committees. Basically. Exactly, and also what he thought about Leo Durocher, how they would fight, 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 and the, the day they won the pennant in 1941, they got into a big fight. He fired Leo that night. Leo woke up thinking he didn't have a job. McPhail yeah. comes downstairs in a beautiful new suit, a fresh carnation. Hey, Leo, let's go over that scouting report, how we're <laughs> going to beat the Yanks. The man was just a, a mad genius. 
Exactly. Well, Mark, we could go on and on, uh, I know, and I'd love to have you on again, but please uh, give give us a call again, and we'll we'll get you back on the podcast, get into some more specifics regarding the ownership of 1938 and Steve McKeever's death. Well, Sam, it's not only a pleasure to be on with you, but I congratulate you because so many people have an interest in Dodger baseball. Uh, I may just have the title, but there's so many people around the world that uh, consider themselves Dodger historians, and, and shows like this uh, I think is a wonderful service for fans. So congratulations to you for what you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you. I very much appreciate that. Thank you very, very much, Mark, and we'll uh, we'll catch each other again. Sounds good, Sam. Thank you, and take care. Absolutely. That's our show, everybody. Join us Friday when Tom Knight, the official Brooklyn baseball historian, will join us on the show. Take care, everybody. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.